3: Log
0: Talk Radio Hi, this is Stephen Nill, CEO of CharityChannel.com So, you want your charity to succeed. You came to the right place. Integration of online and offline techniques is the key to your successful fundraising and practical advice on going green is what you need. With this show, The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, you will learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Our host is Ted Hart, one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. This year, he is celebrating 25 years in the nonprofit sector and the 10-year anniversary of his firm, tedhart.com. His books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. His guests are leaders in their field who will share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management, green strategy, and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, here's Ted.
4: And good afternoon, listeners. Thank you so much for joining us here on The Nonprofit Coach. Today is Tuesday, April 5th coming to you live from the nation's capital. And as always, here on The Nonprofit Coach, you can call in to ask questions of our Page 2 expert by dialing 347-324-3080. You can also join us over in the chat room. I see a few folks starting to join us in the chat room. You can ask questions there. Uh, Or if you're shy, you can also email me at tedhart.com at tedhart.com. But as always here on the nonprofit coach, we start the show off with page 1 news. First up here on page 1 news, you'll find over at tedhart.com, click on radio, you will find the radio links Uh, And follow along with me today, and you will find the uh, new uh, Google for Nonprofits program that you can apply for. Nonprofit organizations, the benefits are Google Grants, YouTube for Nonprofit, Google Earth Outreach Grants, and Google Apps for Nonprofits, uh, and this provides you with more of a Google Apps for Business approach and more of an enterprise approach uh, to using the Google Apps. So this is very much worthwhile. We have the links for you over at tedhart.com. Again, click on radio, and you'll find the radio links where you can apply for the Google for Nonprofits program. Next up here on uh, the nonprofit coach uh, comes to us from the Chronicle of Philanthropy. Top technology executives have pledged to aid nonprofit organizations. We have executives from Apple Google, Twitter, and other leading technology companies that are among 100 business leaders who have signed the Palindrome Pledge. What that is is a commitment to spend a year lending their management expertise to nonprofit organizations. This was reported by Fast Company and the Wall Street Journal. You can read a little bit more about it over at tedhart.com under radio links. Uh, Next up, also here from the Chronicle of Philanthropy, is really great news uh, for our friends in India. Uh, And I'm not going to do a very good job with this gentleman's name, uh, but the Indian industrialist Gandhi Malikarjuna Rao has announced last week that he will donate $340 million to charity. Uh, he is the chairman of GMR Group in Bangalore, uh, and uh, he is giving his entire 12.5% stake uh, in a firm that he uh, heads over there, uh, and uh, he is giving that to a foundation to create an endowment. So this is really um, a terrific group. He's part of 70, a group of 70 wealthy Indians uh, who met privately last week with Warren Buffett And Bill and Melinda uh, Gates, who, of course, have been spearheading uh, the donations of significant wealth uh, to charity here in the United States and around the world. Uh, So we're very pleased to bring this excellent news uh, and, of course, terrific news for our friends in India. I very much appreciated the opportunity to uh, lecture and provide training to charities in India myself last August. Uh, In the coming weeks, we will be announcing uh, this year's Around the World Philanthropy Training Tour, uh, and uh, India will again be included uh, in that tour, which uh, this year will be taking place uh, in September. So for all of our friends around the world, uh, we will be bringing nonprofit training, uh, board development, online fundraising, and social media training, again, to various sites around the world, working with fine partners uh, like, uh, the Fundraising Institute of New Zealand, uh, and others around the world. Uh, Next up here on uh, The Nonprofit Coach, I have uh, the distinct uh, pleasure uh, to introduce you to uh, Chris Griffin. Uh, Chris Griffin is a friend of this show and is uh, with the Association of Fundraising Professionals. Uh, He is their professional advancement coordinator. uh, And Chris Griffin has an announcement that he would like to make to our listeners today. Chris, welcome live here on The Nonprofit Coach. Hi, thanks, Ted. Great to have you here on the show, and uh, you have an announcement of a program that you would like our listeners uh, to register for that's taking place on April 20th. Uh, We have provided a link for this over at tedhart.com. Click on radio for the radio links, but why don't you go ahead and fill our listeners in on this, uh, this announcement
2: uh terrific thanks um well Ted you'll be <laughs> you're actually presenting a webinar for us we have a webinar series and uh, you'll uh, Ted is presenting a webinar on social networking and online fund- fundraising so um which is definitely one of our hot topics right now, so we're very excited to have well, that's that. That's
4: terrific. Well, I'm honored to, uh, to have the opportunity to once again partner uh, with AFP. Uh, we had your uh, outgoing president, Paul Etmaihara, on the show last week, and we'll soon be announcing uh, the date of uh, the new president, uh, Andrew Watch, who's going to be here live on the show. But tell our listeners who may not be familiar uh, with AFP's webinar series, what is this series all about, and, and why does AFP consider it important? Um, well, we've
2: had a webinar series since 2004. Um, it's, they're an hour and a half program um, with experts in the field on a variety of, of fundraising topics. Um, they um, we, cons- we consider it important because we're trying we have a number of different ways that we're trying to provide education, not just courses, but uh, other items like like the webinars that are very easy it's it's an hour and a half of time um for anyone who's interested in CFRE credit it's it's 1.5 hours of of continuing education credit for CFRE um it's something that we encourage our chapters to offer it's a great lunchtime sort of if you're having a brown bag lunch kind of session at at your office this is a great item for that like i said it's they're they're being offered by experts in their field and on everything from Social media, online fundraising. Um, we have a lot of stuff on planned giving. We have um, stuff on campaigns. So we're covering most of the the fundraising bases.
4: That's great. Well, Chris, this is a uh, is this a monthly uh, webinar series that uh, AFP hosts?
2: It's um, we have them twice a month.
4: So, yeah. oh, twice a month. Well, that's, uh, mm-hmm. that's terrific. This particular webinar that I'm going to be uh, presenting for AFP uh, is scheduled for April 20th, and this is going to be at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, all the details are available over in the radio links today at tedhart.com. Again, click on radio. Uh, Chris Griffin uh, from AFP, I really appreciate you coming on the show today sharing us a little bit of background about what the webinar series is about. And uh, thank you to all of your colleagues for inviting me to present this particular webinar, uh, which will be on social networking and online fundraising success. Thank you for joining us here on The Nonprofit Coach, Chris Griffin. Thank you, Ted. Next up here on uh, the nonprofit coach is uh, uh, just a, a wonderful service that I have uh, shared with you before uh, here on the nonprofit coach, uh, but uh, I want to bring it back to you again because they have improved the service, the reporting, uh, and the online conference manager. And this is of course freeconferencing.com. So this is a free, I'm sorry, a free conference call. Uh, calling.com, and this is a free service that nonprofit organizations can use to set up conference calls, Uh, and this has been a fantastic service for a long time. What I really like about this service uh, is that they will also provide free conference recording. Uh, You can set up large conferences. Um, It's very easy to use, and again, as I I shared with you, they have just updated uh, the the conference call reporting and the online conference manager service that they provide. Uh, so you can uh, learn all about how you can set up a free conference call uh, for your organization, which adds to efficiency, and don't forget, we also support the Green Nonprofits Organization, and so uh, cutting down on people driving to meetings uh, is a good thing uh, for earning your Green Nonprofit certification, Uh, so you can learn all about that at tedhart.com click on radio for the radio links. Uh, Next up here on the Nonprofit Coaches, just to remind you uh, that we do have an excellent show for you today. Uh, Penelope Burke, who I will be introducing in just a few moments, is our page two expert. Uh, She is uh, our number two all-time live listener uh, 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 call-in show when she was on the show in the past. I'm going to talk to Penelope about that uh, in just a, a few moments. So Remember, you can call in to 347- 324 3080. Get a chance to ask questions. It's like having a private consultation uh, with Penelope Burke. And trust me, she's very expensive uh, for her consultations. But today you get free consultation. When you dial that number, press the number one on your keypad that will raise your hand on the switchboard and will let me know that you would like to ask a question. You can also type questions over in the chat room. We have a number of people over there. Uh, and I do see email. Questions coming in to Ted Hart at TedHart.com. Next up here on page one news uh, is seeking to answer a question. Uh, and this is uh, a very important question, I think, for a lot of us. And the question is what's best for my computer? Hibernate, sleep, or shut down Uh, and uh, so what is best for and again you know we support the green uh, Nonprofits organization we want to make sure that we're doing the best thing for uh, saving on uh, uh, on, uh, uh, electricity in running our computers Um, so in this particular uh, link that you'll find over at tedhart.com click on radio you will find that it sort of depends on how you use uh, your computers Uh, in this particular article they note that your work process will determine whether it's more efficient to use sleep mode or simply shut down the computer. It is never fun to have to constantly wait any amount of time to shut down uh, your computer uh, too frequently. Sleep requires more power, but it boots up faster. While Hibernate uses less power, but takes longer to come online. So it depends on how frequently you're turning your computer on and off as to whether or not you should use sleep or hibernate. Of course, we recommend hibernate. It's worth waiting a few more moments if you can't be that impatient, Um, but it does save uh, more uh, power. It uses less power if you use hibernate than sleep, and you can read all about that over in the radio links at uh, uh, tedhart.com. Next up here on uh, the uh, Nonprofit Coach is just to remind you, uh, a few months back, we drew your attention uh, to the 2011 YouTube Nonprofit Video Awards. I'm just going to share with you um, the the little audio clip that we shared with you back then, and then I want to uh, bring you up to date on what's happening with those awards.
1: Did your nonprofit make a video in 2010? Then now's your chance to enter the Do-Gooder Nonprofit Video Awards. Show the world all the great work you did for your important issues in 2010. Issues like the arts, health, environment, human rights, disaster relief, and so much more. Nonprofits of all sizes are welcome to enter their best work. We will award prizes to small, medium, and large organizations, as well as a special award for the best videos produced with a thrifty budget. Winning organizations will receive $10,000 in grants generously provided by the Case Foundation, free registration for the NTC 2012 conference, video products from Put Video, and your winning video featured on the homepage of YouTube. Winners will be announced at the 2011 Nonprofit Technology Conference in Washington, D.C. In order to participate, you must be a member of the YouTube Nonprofit Program. So if you haven't applied for this great free service, do it now. Show us the best and brightest nonprofit videos of 2010.
4: Well, the uh, best uh, videos of 2010, the 2011 YouTube Nonprofit Video Awards, have been awarded. The Do Gooder Nonprofit Video Awards, presented by C3 Communications and YouTube, uh, were uh, presented at the Nonprofit Technology uh, Conference. And I'm very pleased to share with you in the uh, radio links today, uh, you will find that the winners are uh, Post Carbon Institute for a Small Organization video, and their video was entitled 300 Years of Fossil Fuels in 300 Seconds. Uh, Next up for the Medium Organizational video uh, was the Ronald McDonald House of Austin, uh, whose winning video was entitled Meet the Digits. Uh, Next, for a large organizational video, was the American Jewish World Service, uh, and uh, theirs was entitled, A Public Service Announcement Not Approved by uh, the American Jewish World Service. Uh, And for that thrifty, that new category, the thrifty video award, that went to Watershed Management Group, uh, It's In Your Hands is the title uh, for that. You can find the link at tedhart.com. Click on radio, and uh, you will be able to actually watch each of these videos. And I have to tell you, uh, there's more than one tearjerker uh, among those videos. So uh, one of the things that I want to make sure that all of our listeners do is plan ahead uh, and register for the YouTube Nonprofit Video Awards program uh, so that you are ready to go once they make the announcement of the deadlines uh, for the 2012 awards. Uh, next up here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach is uh, to draw your attention uh, to a blog that comes to us from Bidding for Good. Of course, we've had the folks from Bidding for Good uh, here on this show, and they've uh, posted a really terrific blog uh, in what they call the Auction Block uh, and this is one that, that I sort of want to explore uh, with Penelope Burke today uh, in that they're raising this issue of the gen- what they're calling uh, generation generosity or generosity G, uh, where board members and underwriters come in and help nonprofit organizations. Uh, and so they're sort of identifying this Gen G, uh, generation uh, generosity, uh, that uh, is a concept, and they talk all about this, uh, in uh, uh, in the auction block, and you can read all about it over at tedhart.com. Uh, click on radio. So we're just about ready to uh, jump over uh, for uh, our page two expert today. Uh, so stick with us, and we'll be right back. <laughs> Penelope Burke is an author, researcher, and mentor celebrated for some of the most important innovations in modern-day fundraising. In 2000, Penelope introduced the concept of donor-centered fundraising. Today, Penelope's groundbreaking research continues to gain international recognition for challenging long-standing but ineffective fundraising practices and showcasing evidence-based methods that raise more money. Uh, Penelope Burke is also the author uh, of the book, Donor-Centered Fundraising. Uh, she also has a very successful uh, blog called Burke's Blog that you can find uh, at the, the website for Cygnus Applied Research. And uh, she was last here as our guest on December 7th, 2010, uh, and it had the second largest number of live listeners that day. Uh, welcome here back to the nonprofit coach Penelope Burke.
3: Hi Ted, how are you?
4: It is great to have you back here on the show, and I know that one of the principal things that we want to uh, discuss today uh, is your new posting on Cygnus Donor Research Survey where philanthropy is headed in 2011. so in 2011 we want to learn all about what's ahead but before we get there, before we start talking about and we did provide a link over in the radio links uh, to uh, Burke's blog so folks can uh, follow along there but before we get there I want to ask you to make sure that our listeners uh, know what is Cygnus Donor Survey?
3: It's um, a a piece of research that we do now every year. It's a huge research study that we conduct in February each year to find out how donors are thinking, how the economy is affecting them, and most important, what donors are planning for their philanthropy in the coming year. Um, As you could understand, and our and your readers could understand listeners. Um, most research looks back to see what donors did in the past, and this is very valuable. Uh, but it doesn't tell you what go- donors are going to do. So we started this uh, study in February of 2009 in the depth of the recession when everybody was worried about what donors' next step would be. And the results were so fascinating and so many donors participated that we have continued on doing this uh, study every year at the same time. And this year the study just closed and 22,000 donors participated it was just a substantial response higher than ever before uh so what what do you uh,
4: attribute to uh having such a a high response because of course I'm, i'm guessing uh that that just makes the research that that much more valid
3: it certainly does make it more valid because no matter what age demographic we look at or any other demographic, we have statistical reliability, which is really great news. But there are two reasons that attract this, uh, do- so many donors to the study. One is that we partner with not-for-profits who reach out to their donors, asking them to go online and complete our survey. And the second is that, uh, well, you know, to blow our own horn a little bit, we definitely ask different and very interesting questions. So we get many responses from donors who say, uh, this is the most interesting research study we've ever participated in, whether it's about philanthropy or any other subject. So uh, we're very we're very proud of that. And those two things combined give us this huge response. Um, and every year about a third of the donors who participate uh, sign up to be on our mailing list, and and, um, uh, they are willing to do all kinds of research with us, uh, and in return we provide them with the results.
4: Well, and, and the results, of course, uh, are so important to understanding, uh, you know, what's in the minds of, of a donor, and your research has been so groundbreaking. I want to just explore before we, you know, because obviously sort of the, the, the big news today is your findings of, of this particular study. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the statements that you made when you were with us last um, is that the the essence of your research, if I've got this right, um, is to help charities make more money faster.
3: Absolutely.
4: Um, Why is that the case, and how does your research make that happen?
3: There are really two big factors that contribute to profit in fundraising, and one is holding on to the donors you already have. Um, and moving or encouraging donors to move their gift values up higher and faster than they would normally do. Those are the two things that cause uh, the biggest gap between the value of the gift and the cost to get it and contribute to the most profit an organization can make. Uh, You make some profit by having a lot of donors, but you make much more profit Uh, by focusing on a limited number of donors from whom you maximize gift value and um, increase the longevity of their relationship. So our research is almost always focused on those two things, How, how will donors stay loyal longer and what do we need to do as fundraisers to make that happen
4: and and one of the absolutely shocking um uh, statistics that you shared with uh with us last time and I'd like you to reflect on it for our listeners today is that 90% of donors stop giving within five asks of the first
3: gift. Yes, and that 90% is a national figure and it's higher in certain uh in certain not-for-profits um not-for-profit organizations that are very prolific solicitors, uh, in other words, they're asking every month or every six weeks uh, for a gift from their donors, uh, can experience a rate of donor attrition as high as 98%. So it's, uh, it's crippling because uh, all fundraisers know that it costs more to get a donor to give for the first time. Than it does to keep one giving who's already a contributor, and so you only want to make that high investment once, and after that you want to hold on to as many donors as possible. So the big so problem- Penelope,
4: what, you know, that, I mean that's just that, that's staggering because what what that mm-hmm. says is is that the long term value of those donors is not very high if they're, they stop giving after five asks. So what are charities getting wrong? that's sending 90% of their donors looking for the door?
3: Uh, Two reasons fundamentally, and we ask this in every research study, and it stayed steady for 12 years. Uh, The number one reason why donors uh, stop giving is over-solicitation. It used to be number two. Now it's moved up to number one. And the second reason is lack of good information on what happens with their money. Uh, particularly donors say they want to get measurable results on their last gift before they're asked for another one. And when those two things, when when donors are not being over-solicited and when they do get measurable results, which unfortunately is only in the minority of cases, but when that does happen, the retention rate is significantly higher, as is the gift value, and consequently organizations are automatically more profitable.
4: Penelope, this dovetails into uh, our first email question that just came in from uh, Julie in Chicago, um, and she's asking, um, how much is too much solicitation? And you've just raised the, the point that that's the number one pet peeve of donors as to why they stop giving. So how much is too much, and how do charities know not to do too yep. much?
3: It's a critical question, and donors can an- have answered it emphatically. So uh, it's not a number of solicitations. It's not like three is okay, but four is too many in a year. Donors say that feeling over-solicited means being asked to give again before they're satisfied about what happened with the last gift. So over-solicitation and under-communication are inextricably linked. Uh, And it also means that the solicitation pattern is going to be different charity to charity depending on the nature of the services they provide.
4: Yeah, and, and Penelope, does this raise the sort of the, the age-old question that you know always seems to get put on the table, but then gets uh, pushed to the back backdrop, and that is a good old-fashioned stewardship.
3: It certainly does, because really stewardship is everything that goes on between one ask and the next. And once a donor has been acquired, in other words, they've made their first gift, they say that they make their decisions to give again or not, or give more based on what goes on in between the solicitations, not at the time that they're being asked. And so stewardship is that all-important ingredient uh, to profit.
4: Nellope Burke, I'm going to ask you when we come back from uh, our break to give us some of those tips of what you've learned should be done in between solicitations uh, to improve this 90% uh, drop-off rate that uh, the charities are exhibiting. Don't forget that when we come back from the break, you can dial in to 347-324-3080. Uh, raise your hand by pressing number 1. Let me know if you'd like to ask a question. I have a number of people on the switchboard but I don't know if you want to ask a question unless you press number one you can also join us over in the chat room we've got a good number of people over there today you can type your question there Uh, or as Julie just did from Chicago uh, you can send us an email at tedhart at tedhart.com and we'll be right back Sponsor of today's program is Pesci Law and Accounting, and they are sponsoring a webinar on building a powerful board that can fundraise. I'm very pleased that they've asked me to present this uh, webinar, and it is available to you on Monday, May 2nd, at 2 p.m. Eastern. Of course, you can find a link to register for this important webinar uh, at tedhart.com. Click on Radio. You'll find the radio links, and you can register right online. They also have have a printable form that you can fax-in or mail-in. Now, this is one of the first times that I've taken my very popular Building a Powerful Board that Can Fundraise uh, seminar and put it in webinar format. So I'm very pleased to have this opportunity uh, to work with Pesci Law and uh, for them to highlight uh, this particular webinar uh, by sponsoring uh, today's show. So thank you to the folks at Pesci Law, and we're going to head back to the show. (laughs) Our guest today is world renowned uh, researcher and author Penelope Burke. Uh, Penelope, uh, before we uh, went over on the break, um, I was asking you about what are the concrete things we we're talking about stewardship. We're talking about this absolutely astronomical number of 90% of donors stop giving within five asks of their first gift, which is an incredible drop-off for charities. So what does your research say are some of the good things that charities can do to try to stem that tide?
3: There's all kinds of positive things, and luckily for um, charities, uh, donors list of what they need is really short, and the research that we have just closed this year with the 22,000 donors who responded uh, updates our information on what it is that donors are looking for. And I thought your listeners might be particularly interested in knowing what we found out from donors about the impact of social media on giving as well.
4: Uh- Absolutely, absolutely. Now, in your research, uh, you found that, uh, and this is, if I'm reading it correctly, uh, this is the uh, highest percentage of uh, donors in your survey that have responded as saying that they uh, plan to give approximately the same more intend to increase uh, their giving over last year. Uh, that's the highest percentage uh, reporting those numbers in the last three years. So this is good news, and I know that your your blog says brace yourself for happiness. Uh, so bring us up to date on what is the impact of social media on these wonderful numbers.
3: Well, we were thrilled uh, to find such good news. Um, and we had two objectives in the 20 or so questions out of 100 that we asked of donors. We devoted 20 to social media and its impact on giving. And we wanted to know two things. Uh, first, is social media a worthwhile fundraising tool now, or could it become worthwhile in the near future? And second, do social media friends? have influence in the same way that volunteers or donors influence other donors to give or to give more. Uh, And your listeners are the first to hear these results. They're not even published yet. So I'll be very eager to hear any feedback from you and your listeners on what we've got, but I'll launch into a couple of the key findings, shall I?
4: Absolutely. And, And let me just say, thank you for announcing them here on the nonprofit coach.
3: Great. So first of all, out of the 22,000 donors who participated 69% have one or more social media accounts uh you know of course facebook is the most popular but uh, there are others as well um, and uh, no one will be surprised to find out that the younger the donor, the more likely they are to have uh, be active in social media. Though I think your younger listeners might be horrified to find that 63% of their parents and 40% of their grandparents also have Facebook accounts. <laughs> That's great. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's really growing. So um, the first, while overall our findings about what donors intend to do with their philanthropy in 2011 are really positive and show an increase in confidence and uh, desire, Uh, it's not as positive when it relates to social media. 57% or just over half of our donors who have uh, social media accounts say they do not follow any charitable organizations through social media. Do you find that surprising?
4: Uh no, I don't um because I it, one of the things that our listeners are uh, familiar with here on on, uh, on this show is that there are a number of things that we recommend that charities do online before they get to Facebook. Uh, number one is a well-designed website with good communication tools. Next mm-hmm. is a guide star strategy. Third is a LinkedIn strategy. So Facebook is number four. So um, oh. I, it doesn't surprise me because I think a lot of charities are not as engaged there.
3: Yeah, I would agree. I'm
4: interested in the 53% who do follow charities right. on Facebook. right.
3: So those followers um, are not actually the heaviest users of social media, we find, that uh, respondents who say they follow at least one charitable organization were much more likely to spend five hours or less a week on social media or networking sites, Um, and they also give less. So social media users following charities uh, gave about um, 30% less last year in all, regardless of how they made those contributions. They gave less money to the charitable sector than did account holders who don't follow any causes. So whether, okay. uh, so I'd have to say that to this point, um, whatever not-for-profits are putting on their social media uh, sites is not really, it doesn't seem to be driving gift value upward at this point so that's yeah, and I a think pretty important. part
4: of the reason for that is that charities are not providing um, uh, really inspiring content they 're using mm-hmm. it more as a bulletin board uh, than they are it, it really truly engaging uh, people in the social media way
3: well that 's fascinating because we ask donors as well. What, um, what sparks their interest, and what would make it worth their time uh, to uh, invest time on uh, charity sites and sixty five percent of people who follow someone uh, say they do so because the not for profit is an expert in its field, and okay. you know, you can 't just claim you're expert; uh, you really have to substantiate that. Um, uh, right behind that, 62% said they follow particular charities because they post relevant updates on the work that they do.
4: Yeah. And I found well, and I, that think that, really- I think that really is um, the the key here is is are you posting on a regular basis? Uh, are you an expert in what you're talking about? Uh and I think that that's where a lot of charities miss the boat on social media. Uh, but it, as as I shared you know, very quickly, and, and our listeners know, there are so many other things that I think charities need to be doing that will actually hit the bottom line. I think Facebook is important. I think you know 550 million people, uh, it's hard to deny, uh, but it, it is not, and your research is bearing it out uh, today, and I've said this uh, for quite some time. I Facebook, therefore I fundraise, is not a true mm-hmm. statement
3: no not necessarily we also looked at peer influence which is a big big deal and what i mean by that is uh, that the mass influencers people for instance on a twitter account who will retweet what you post um, mass influencers are relatively small in number they they represent about 15-16 percent of americans um, who have social networking accounts, but they're responsible for over 80% of the brand impressions. So they're really your hard workers. And um, we asked in our survey uh, who is active, really active in that way. And about 16% of our respondents who follow one or more not for profits say that they're more likely to take an interest. Uh, in following, if it appears on a friend's following list, which is, I thought, really interesting. So while this is definitely a minority at sixteen percent, at this group could include a disproportionate number of these mass influencers, uh, making right. their you know their real impact is much larger. So figuring out who your who your um, active follows followers are who can actually do some of your work for you by by um, broadcasting your messages and by endorsing uh, not-for-profits on their own Uh, through their own accounts that's the critical thing it's maybe less of a volume issue and more of a quality issue on who's following
4: you i i i I, i'm just all smiles over here penelope uh, because as our listeners those who have have been listening for a while know that what i've been promoting is this concept of finding what i call your aunt mabel um Mm -hmm. because charities do want this to be a volume they just they just want you know where do I buy the email list where how you know I've got 3,000 people who like me on Facebook but I'm not raising any money and they're yep. expecting that it is a volume business and it simply is not and no. what, you, what you're showing here and I'm wondering if if uh, if, if you can uh, help us sort of draw the connection between online and offline is a minority of your offline contacts are also going to be influencers in your community it's the same thing online what we're looking at here is you're saying 15 to 16 percent well that's a pretty good size number if you can activate that 15 to 16 percent but i think what a lot of charities are trying to do is act as if it's 100 percent of people who are on facebook or uh, media uh, outlets are influencers and they're simply not and your research is proving that
3: Yep, you're absolutely right. We also drilled down into who's giving, uh, and whether whether social media is just sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul or whether it's a real value added in fundraising. And this is a really this is so early in the game, but I think that your listeners might be interested in what we found. We um we asked everyone who had accounts and who gave. Uh, to assess the overall impact of their charitable giving as a result of following through social media. And here's what they said. Uh, Forty-five percent of respondents said their giving increased overall as the gifts that were inspired through following were in addition to the gifts they made through other means. And 52 percent said uh, their giving was the same. Uh, and only 3% said that their giving was reduced, which is really good news. So
4: 45%, let me, let me understand this, 45% said that their, 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 fund, their gifts increased if they were also able to follow good content on social media. Yes.
3: Now, we're talking about a small number again, just focusing on what you said, which is so important. It's 45% of a relatively small number, but it's still very encouraging because if all that social media was doing was causing people who, let's say, used to give through the mail or give online to move that same gift value into a social media context, then it's not really adding anything except for the stewardship value of being on facebook or whatever but it seems like there is potential to increase overall giving over time but it's definitely not there yet and i think not-for-profits need to approach this in a much more sophisticated manner uh, than they are doing currently
4: absolutely i could not agree with you more and i'm so pleased that that now we have and again this is the hallmark of Penelope Burke is that, you know, we have things that are changing and growing in in our industry, and now we have statistics to back it up. And uh, one of the things that, that we've been promoting on this show, and I certainly have been uh, in my presentations, is this notion of being more focused. Is this notion of focusing in, on, uh, as you're saying, mass influencers, and, and we refer to them as, as Aunt Mabel's. People who have followers who are able to get content out. And share with us again that statistic. It's 15 to 16 percent of the overall contacts are likely to be mass influencers, but yet they, those 15 to 16 percent are responsible for 80% of the impressions
3: that's right it's it's massive there's very little research out there in the for-profit sector or the not-for-profit sector so far but it's starting to emerge and um i'd strongly suggest to your listeners that they uh they follow as much industry research as possible to get an idea of how to how to find their mass, mass influencers and then how to influence them to do their job on your behalf
4: yeah well, and that and that's the really the, the the crux of it here is now you know we we're, you were sharing earlier with sort of these these dismal uh, statistics of of uh, the renewing of donors over a, a period of time and some of the best practices there and now it's time for us to understand what are some of the best practices for online and it certainly is building an audience. I mean that that's part of what you need to do, but what we're finding is is the the notion of social media is that it must be social and that people follow content that's linked to people that they already have a trust factor with.
3: You're so right. We asked a couple of questions directly on that. We said, if a friend endorsed a not-for-profit organization on his or her social media site, one that you had never supported before, would that influence you to give for the first time? And um, the question was asked on a scale of 1 to 7, with 7 being absolutely I'd do that. And it came out at 3.8, which is – we're not yet in the enthusiastic range, uh, but there's potential for donor acquisition through this medium. Um, Now, that's a bit lower
4: than I might have thought that it was, but I also um, am guessing that um, it may have to do with the – uh, sort of the strength of that endorsement, uh, and probably even has a stronger connection to those mass influencers that it someone does. who who has influence and knows how to use it probably can endorse a charity and have greater results than someone yep. who never done that before and doesn 't really have a track record.
3: That's exactly right. Uh, we asked a similar question on, you know, if you were already supporting a particular charity and a friend endorsed that one, would that influence you to give again? And that wasn't nearly as strong. And where I think, you know, when you're when you're early in a new media, uh, early for fundraising purposes. Um, Uh, some of the data which may not look hugely positive is showing an indicator of future potential. And as you and your listeners may know, donor acquisition through traditional means, especially through direct mail, is falling, and it's falling dramatically every year. It's harder and harder through that method to get someone to give for the first time. And a lot of the shift, as people shift away from the mail and into anything electronic, and particularly into social media, I think that will become the acquisition tool of the future. And the not-for-profits on the leading edge who take advantage of it now are the ones that get control of the mass influencer concept and... Uh, don't just broadcast here's our next event on their social media site, but use it to really drive home the results that they're achieving on the ground.
4: Well, I think, I think that, that is vitally important that, that, we, uh, that, that we are tracking that as, as a change in our industry. And certainly there isn't a charity listening today that doesn't understand that their, their results are probably going down, but their costs are going way up. Um, so the cost effectiveness versus uh, the, the, uh, the draw on uh, prospecting in particular uh, is way out of whack from what it was just a few years ago.
3: Mhm mhm I'd say beside the besides the mass influencers issue uh which is very important, that we're making three other recommendations from the research we did i can't I can't uh barely scratch the surface of the research on social media that we did in this study. But out of it all has come this. Penelope, I'm that- just going to
4: hold you because I want to hold everybody in suspense about your three recommendations okay. that came out of your new research. We're going to take just a, a quick break uh, to, uh, uh, to give away a little something, uh, and then we'll be uh, right back, and I want you to get right into uh, those three recommendations that comes directly out of Penelope Burke's new research. We'll be right back. <laughs> Listeners know that uh, for the last uh, few months we have had a partnership with GreenNonprofits.org. Uh, this is a wonderful organization that seeks to help or, uh, your organization become more green and move towards green nonprofit certification. You can find them at GreenNonprofits.org. Readers of our newsletter at P2PFundraising.org uh, and the GreenNonprofits.org newsletter. Um know that we have been giving away copies of the Nonprofit Guide to Going Green and that this has been sponsored by Santa Fe Aventis. Uh, if you want to learn how you can uh, win one of these uh, wonderful autographed books, uh, then uh, you can find that information at greennonprofits.org by signing up for their newsletter. So it is my privilege today to announce uh, today's winner of the most recent donated copy from Santa Fe Aventus of the Nonprofit uh, Guide to Going Green, uh, and that is Mary Ellen Hutka. Uh, from the Mid-Atlantic Catholic Schools in Annapolis, Maryland. So, Mary Ellen, congratulations on winning uh, the latest copy of the Nonprofit Guide uh, to Going Green. So, Penelope, uh, we're uh, we're back here, and I know that our listeners have got to be on the edge of their seats wondering what are those three recommendations that are now coming from Penelope Burke's latest uh, 2011 research?
3: Well, number one is that since having social media accounts is now the norm for donors, And is increasing among middle-aged donors and those over the age of 65. And also, since donor communication and fundraising success are inextricably linked, it is critical that every not-for-profit who raises money has a presence on social media. I mean, this is no longer optional; it is a must-do. So yeah, and, and pers- you,
4: you've been pointing out for for a little while um, that uh, that this has definitely, in your in your estimation, has reached beyond the tipping point. Uh, and is that because of the the age demographics that social media is now reaching beyond uh, younger users?
3: It's definitely because of age. It's not just that, but um, age is the big factor. And uh, while it's I shouldn't say while, it is critically important to develop uh, uh, loyalty and support among donors under the age of 35 even though they're not yet at a stage of life where they can uh, give the most generous contributions. And too much about fundraising focuses only on donors who can give big without thinking about where their future is coming from. So, uh, But it does make it a lot easier for not-for-profits to uh, launch energetically and put budget funds behind social media when they know that both the middle-aged and the older donors are also in the game
4: yeah so so in particularly for those influencers that you want to connect with uh they have a broader audience to uh uh to draw from and and part of the the research that came out i think last year um was this shift and, and as that research that you put out uh showed that it, it is even among donors over
3: age sixty five yes, absolutely right, so my second so what's recommendation? number two. Yeah, number two is that um, the majority of account holders don't follow any charities, as I mentioned before. Uh, So not-for-profits really need to look inward. This is not the donor's fault, and we're we're very good in fundraising at blaming the donor for statistics that are out there. Like before, an example I can give to compare is that often donors themselves are blamed for being skittish or unreliable when they give once uh, in, let's say, a disaster to an emergency relief organization and then never give again. But when we survey those donors about why they stopped giving, uh, they say it's because they didn't get any information that would have compelled them to keep giving. So we've got a similar situation here in social media. If the majority of account holders don't follow any charities, it's not the fault of the account holder. It's the fault of the fundraising industry that is not showcasing their own social media in ways that make themselves irresistible and compelling to donors. So reviewing it's not good enough just to have a Facebook page, you then have to market it uh, to your donors. Right. And the, the content number number two is, two is you must
4: provide irresistible and compelling content.
3: Absolutely. And So what's number uh, three? Yeah, number three is while the influence of, of social media friends yet is not yet a motor motiva- a big motivator to give, it's going to be. And the signs are there that social media will play an increasingly important role, especially in donor acquisition. So in light of the declining success and increasing cost of more traditional means of finding new donors, this is a new avenue, and not-for-profits should invest in social media as a means of expanding their donor base in a positive way, especially among donors under the age of 35, which is where everyone's future will lie very soon.
4: And I'm almost, I'm almost uh, going to to label your number three as as uh, and I think we discussed this last time you were on on the show is. This is back to basics, Penelope. This is back to relationship-based fundraising, where uh, this is not just mass appeal of how big my direct mail list is, how big my email list is. This is actually taking the time to build relationships with what you refer to as mass influencers. I refer to uh, as finding your your Aunt Mabel. Um, But the key here is to provide compelling content, as you said, reaching out and providing that to people who can influence others. That's how fundraising has traditionally really succeeded offline as well. It's not just going door to door. Certainly some organizations are able to do that, but the the largest continuous money that's been raised for nonprofits has been relationship-based fundraising where somebody knows somebody, makes the case, and makes the ask.
3: You're 100% right. and uh, No matter how technology evolves and no matter what new means of communications emerge, People fundamentally need the same things in life, and um, you're right. That same basic, powerful force of building a relationship with don- a donor, whether you do it online or offline, uh, is, uh, is the same. Donors still need to know why you're raising money and then what you've accomplished with the money, uh, and only that will uh, inspire them to stay by your side, stay loyal, and give increasingly generous gifts.
4: So let me see if I've got this, uh, this right. I just wanted to uh, uh, summarize for our listeners today that Penelope Burke's uh, three recommendations coming out of her recent uh, 2011 research uh, that focused or had a portion of it focused on the use of social media by nonprofits is, number one, that we've now moved beyond the, the guessing game and the, gee, that's new, uh, but nonprofit organizations must have a social media presence. Number two, they must be providing irresistible and compelling content uh, if they want to draw people to them, and that the key to fundraising is back-to-basics, relationship-building, using social media.
3: You're absolutely right.
4: Well, that's great. Well, Penelope, I'm I'm just going to uh, uh, share a little bit of information on uh, technically what we call our page three, uh, and that is uh, where you can find Ted next, uh, and then I want to find out where uh, people can find Penelope next. Uh, I will be um, speaking this week on Friday at the AFP Rhode Island Annual Conference on social media and online fundraising. That's being held at the Sheridan Providence Airport Hotel in Warwick, uh, Rhode Island. Uh, so please uh, come out and uh, see me. I'd love to uh, uh, see you if you're going to be uh, in the area. Uh, and, of course, you can uh, learn more about that at AFPnet.org. Just find the uh, Rhode Island chapter, and you'll be able to register uh, Uh, For their conference, you also uh, can, if you uh, prefer a phone, if uh, some people still use phones, uh, Penelope, uh, is that I believe that you can uh, connect with uh, Susan Pollitt, uh, who's up there in Providence, Rhode Island, if you give her a call at 401-455-6581, she'll get you all set up for uh, participating in this particular conference. Uh, Penelope, uh, back to you. How can our listeners, uh, who have uh, just been had such a treat today uh, with your announcement here on the Nonprofit Coach of this latest research, how can they connect with you and how can they benefit further uh, from your research at uh, Cygnus Research?
3: Well, we're offering a couple of opportunities for your listeners. Uh, one is that our This whole research report, which uh, the social media section is one of only uh, seven or eight themes we've covered in the report this year, uh, will be published within the next two weeks, and uh, fundraisers will be able to get at it through our website, which is www.cygresearch.com. And I'm also going to be doing a webinar next month on um, the Cygnus Donor Research Study, uh, and that's coming up uh, for Canadians. We have a webinar on Wednesday, May the 4th, and for our uh, for Americans uh, the day before on Tuesday, May 3rd. It's an hour to an hour and a half webinar where I'll walk people through the key findings um, of what has turned out to be an extraordinary research study.
4: That is uh, that is really terrific and, of course, in the radio links today at tedhart.com, click on radio, uh, you will find a link to uh, Penelope Burke's uh, latest uh, blog posting and in there is a link where you can register to get notification uh, about the 2011 Cygnus donor uh, survey report uh, and I am sure that in doing that uh, Penelope will also keep you posted on uh, the upcoming Uh, research and webinars. Uh, Next up here on the Nonprofit Coach, next week we are off. There is no show next week. Uh, Your host will be in Toronto at the Digital Leap Conference. I'm hoping that uh, anyone who uh, is within driving distance uh, can join us and you can get all that information at digitalleap.org. Our next Nonprofit Coach show, you can mark it down on your calendars, will be on Tuesday, April 19th uh, and our uh, expert here on the show will be Simone Joyot, who We'll be talking about keeping the owner. Uh, and I'm actually going to have the opportunity to have dinner with Simone uh, up in uh, Providence, Rhode Island on Thursday, so I'm looking forward to seeing her and preparing for that show on April 19th. Uh, so, uh, Penelope Burke, thank you so much for coming on the show again. Uh, absolutely bang-up show today, uh, just as you did back in December. I look forward to having you on the show again real soon.
3: Thanks, Ted, for inviting me. Talk to you soon.
4: Take care, everyone. Have a a great couple of weeks. We'll be back here on (laughs) 18th.